We are in James chapter 1. We're only going to get a couple of uh, verses in here. If anybody not see the summary I gave, I gave a fairly detailed summary on Facebook this time, a little more so than, than before. Anybody anybody see that? Uh, look at that. What's that? Yep. Yeah, I, I put one up there last night, but then I gave you a little more detailed one here this afternoon. But there are events that go on all around us. There's good ones, there's bad ones, there's ones that really are just kind of indifferent. But believers are asking, where is God in this? We can think of some of the things that have happened in the last year, things that have happened recently, and people always want to wonder, where is God in what's going on? Did He bring it about? Did He allow it to happen? Or was there something we were supposed to do to keep it away? For the people in James' day, some of these events were national, like the fate of Jerusalem, or the death of an evil ruler like Herod. Others were more widespread, like a terrible Caesar Nero coming to power, or a famine that the prophets announced. Still others were changes to individuals, like a new baby, death of a provider, or a sudden move away from Judea. Events both good and bad can bring Great times of testing. Now we all know how much we love babies. And when babies come into our lives, whether they're our own or grandbabies or other people's, we love watching them grow up. That's an exciting part of life. But they bring changes and they test our physical and spiritual abilities. But they still are a good thing. So whether something is good or whether something is bad, it can test us. Test our physical abilities, test our spiritual abilities, test our emotions. James is a letter from a pastor to his church, a church that has become scattered throughout the Roman Empire. He no longer has a Sunday morning or a Sabbath day connection with them to encourage them in their, in their tests and trials, so he wrote them a letter. The letter made its way around to many of the places that they now call home. His words of wisdom were given through the Holy Spirit's inspiration and it will help us as we try to see the hand of God on our own families, our church, our nation, and this world and all the chaos and the evil the devil kingdom throws at us. Is what we see from God. How do we respond to the evil and how do we find the good? How do I keep from giving up and just hiding out until Jesus comes? So that's what we wrote up there for you. So we said this is the only book written by a pastor to the congregation. James was probably in his sermons, in his talks with his people, forewarning the people of the coming destruction that Jesus had talked about. And the people probably thought he was wrong or that the day was way far off. Surely nothing is imminent. Nothing is close by. So there was some strife that would probably be going on between James having one opinion and the church having another. I spent a lot of time trying to read all I could on the history of James, the setting of James, trying to get a, a feel for what was going on during that time. If we compare this to other times in Jerusalem and Samaria's history and the things that happened when they faced an approaching crisis, when Samaria was facing the crisis of Assyria, when Jerusalem was facing the crisis of Assyria, of Babylon, of Egypt, we saw that God sent his prophets to speak to them and to tell them what was to come. To give them warning. After God would send his prophets, the false prophets, of course, would come and they would confuse the message. They would distract the people. The people would often take sides and some had actions of belief or disbelief in the things that God would say. What happened before probably happened again here. And what you're probably looking at is that James is in an environment 
in which the destruction of Jerusalem at the time of the writing of this letter is probably about 12 years away. The time of this writing of this letter is estimated to be between 45 and 48 A.D. Some of the speculation for that is because there is no mention of the Council of Jerusalem in the letter which James was the head of. You would think that there would at least be a mention of it in the letter that he was sending out to the believers, the Jewish believers all over the Roman Empire. But he did not even put a mention of it. So it would seem to date before that. That council was in 49 AD. If that timing is correct, it would make James the earliest letter of those written. The time frame, about a dozen years or so before the fall of Jerusalem, would probably be very similar to some of the other times we saw before Jerusalem fell or before Samaria fell. People believed that God was going to show up and deliver them when the destruction seemed to be coming down upon them. When they couldn't see it with their physical eyes, they believed that it would not come. They probably had a lot of that going on now, but the persecution was was rising. The persecution had come up. People were being receiving hardship because of their faith in Jesus. These were Jewish people. The Jewish religion had the covering of an approved religion under the Roman Empire. The Christians did not. And as long as the Christian religion was part of the Jewish religion, they were protected. But there came a time when the Jewish religion decided to part with the Christian religion and to make sure that everybody knew that they are not part of us and they began to persecute the Christians, which meant the Romans began to persecute them as well. When that persecution began to rise up, people left Jerusalem, specifically the believers. Those that were Jewish had no real reason to go. The persecution was not coming against them, but the persecution was coming against the Christians, and so many of the believers left. So James has a church in which many of the members are leaving and are going to other places. And that can certainly wear on him as uh, people that he's, he's known for a long time, people that uh, uh, had, had children there, were a part of the, the church, were people that he counted on to do certain things, were feeling persecuted and said, James, we, we just don't feel that we can stay here anymore. We're going to head over to, in the name of country, and they're going to head over to there. And another one would come up and they're going to head over to here. And another one would come up and they're going to head over to here. And that can certainly wear down the pastor to see that people that he counted on are, are going. Because certainly the ones that are going to leave first are the ones that are the most prominently used. Because they would be at the forefront. The ones that are in the background, no one knows, no one's really doing anything. They would probably be left alone and they wouldn't be persecuted as much. But the people that were the leaders... The people that he would depend on the most, these are the ones that probably received the greatest persecution and probably the first ones to decide to move on to another place. And so this is what he is is facing. The exodus has already been going on for a while and he is feeling, I need to minister to these people, I need to help them in what's going on, but I don't have this time that we can get together on Sunday and, and teach them. I say Sunday, they may still be meeting on on Saturday, but you, you get the idea. That's the time when, when the church would come together. He doesn't have that time. He didn't have podcasts. He didn't have uh, Facebook uh, broadcasts. He didn't have any ability to get anything to them except for a letter. And so James sat down to write this letter to the church, the church that he was the pastor of, people that he knew who were dispersed all over the Roman Empire and He wrote a letter. I'm sure that they made copies and they sent them out in every direction that they could. In some of those letters, the copy would come to a city like Ephesus or a city like Corinth or a city like Rome and it'd be addressed to the Christians that were there. And so they would come together wherever they were meeting, maybe in somebody's home. We have a letter from James and they would begin to read this letter and this letter was to encourage them in the things that they were facing the persecution, the loss of their homeland, the loss of family members, 
moving to a place where they knew no one except for the people that moved out there with them. Their job is gone. They had to come out and start a whole new job. And they had the protection of the Jewish culture before. Now they're going into a heathen culture. And if they were involved in some some of the trades, they now had to deal with trade guilds. And those trade guilds involved a lot of things that they were against and that they wouldn't have been able to get involved with. And so some of those people are now in new places to escape the persecution and now don't know what to do for a job. These are the things that they're facing. These are the things that James wants to write to them and help them about. A summary, I gave you this summary before when we were over this. It hasn't really changed any. But three parts to this. First, the he's going to define what, what true religion is, what genuine religion is. And this is in the first chapter. In the second chapter, in the third chapter, we're going to see he's going to talk about genuine faith. And then the ending, midway through the third chapter into the end of the book, we're going to see what genuine wisdom is. Not going to get into this too much tonight. Maybe down the road we were. I was doing some work on this, comparing the, the two. But it is remarkable, remarkable how parallel to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount this book is. There are so many parallels. And so we may spend some time on that just to, to show you show you this. When Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, James was not a believer. But somehow he came into the writing of the Sermon on the Mount. Of course, his disciples wrote it down and they, they knew it. And when James got born again, he may have been one of the things that they had brought up to him. Oh, I remember this sermon that your brother gave. And they began to recite this to him. And he began to hear this and heard other people talking about this Sermon on the Mount. And so he may have studied it, may, may have pursued it. And the person that he did not believe in as being the Messiah, it seems, was very influential in this letter that he wrote. This letter that he wrote to encourage people who've been dispersed. To encourage people who are facing hardship. So we'll probably take some time and we'll do that, but we're not going to do that here tonight. The Sermon on the Mount is recorded in Matthew chapter 5 and through chapter 7. There are some other places there too that we could focus in on. But let's start this off here. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. So this is our target. These are the ones that we are to to look for. James, the brother of Jesus. This is... Uh, there are two prominent James in the New Testament. This is one, the James, the brother of Jesus is one, and James the Apostle, James of uh, James and John, those two, the sons of thunder. They, uh, he was the other one. But he died somewhere around 44 A.D. He was one of the first martyrs. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 12 and verse 2, where they had uh, take, took James the Apostle, and he was killed. There are different theories as to who this James is. And I spent a little bit of time to read over some of the ridiculousness that people can come up with. I, I think some of it is just because they want to come up with another theory. But if you are not aware of this, or it's, this is not something that jumps out at you all the time. But there are two James in the list of disciples. There is James, who became the, who was the brother of John, and then there is a uh, James, the son of uh, oh, I just forgot his name, Alphaeus. Thank you. There is James, the son of Alphaeus, who is one of the minor disciples. You don't hear a whole lot about him. He usually ends up being towards the end of the list. What is interesting is that Matthew is called Levi in one of the other Gospels. And he has said that he is the son of Alphaeus. It is not likely that it is the same one. If there was a relationship there, that probably would have been brought out since the relationship between James and John was brought out and that one was not. It probably would have been brought out. So it's very, very easily that it could have been two different ones. But that is certainly not the James who wrote this book. The James who wrote this book was very prominent in the church of Jerusalem. 
which would be James, the brother of Jesus. Now, the Catholic Church has a problem with this being James, the brother of Jesus. The Protestant Church does not. But the Catholic Church has a problem with James being the brother of Jesus because they still see and teach that Mary remained a virgin all her years. So, they had to come up with a way for James to be called the brother of Jesus but not be the son of Mary. <laughs> so what they came up with, and I know of absolutely zero support for this. There's, I can't find a single thing that you can, you can support this with. But what they came up with was that um, Joseph was married before Mary. And that they had, uh, he had sons. And so James would thereby be the older brother. Now here's the problem with that. Here's one of the problems with that. Do you remember when Jesus was left at the temple? And they just assumed that he was with the others. If Jesus was the youngest of the brothers and sisters, would you assume that the youngest is okay of your group? If you have a group of six, I don't know how many there were, let's just say you had a group of six siblings, and the youngest one wasn't with the group, would you assume that that was okay? No. The youngest one, you're going to go out and you're going to find the youngest one. If the one that is missing is the oldest, well, he's probably out there, you know, he's with so-and-so or whatever. As long as we've got the younger ones, we're, we're in good shape. Right? It's more likely that it would go in that scenario than that um, uh, that Jesus was the youngest of all of them and that after he married Mary, he had no more children. Uh, that just doesn't make make the sense that it does. But that's what they came up with in order to keep Mary a virgin for the rest of her years and James still a brother of, of Jesus. But um, I don't see it as that. I, I really don't know how you get there, <laughs> but somehow they did. And now I'm not saying that all Catholic people believe that. I'm saying this, the church itself, this is what they were teaching in their, in their formal doctrines of this. There may be uh, many Catholics who just looked at that and said, that's ridiculous and, and just uh, went on with it. I don't know. Um, but anyway, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, I also wrote in your outline Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, which is almost identical to it. But let's read Matthew. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his Mary called Mary and his brothers James, Hoses? Simon and Judas. So there are four brothers that are listed there. Now that gives you a family of five. If you go over to Mark, you'll find out are his, are not his sisters here with us? Now sisters is plural, so there's gotta be at least two. But there may be more than that. So if you just go with the minimum, we got four brothers and him, that's five and two, there's at least seven in the family. Could be more. But we know that there's at least seven. Just from those those right there. Now, James is not a true brother of Jesus. He is a half-brother. And that's, but in his letter, he does not refer to himself as a brother of Jesus. He calls himself a bondservant of Jesus. In John chapter 7, verse 1, And after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, brothers, so that means that all four of them were got together and they came over. One was a spokesman, but he was speaking for all of them. Depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, of course, they didn't believe him, as he says that in the next one, for even his brothers did not believe in him. So they grew up with him. And people say, well, they saw his faults. I don't know that you see any faults in someone who who did not give in to the sin nature. So, uh, But, you know, you could be perfect in all things and still your brother or sister will find something wrong with you. <laughs> They'll come up with something. In with with all that, with the I was talking to... Um, one of the, the young people there at the back, and um, we were talking about sisters. And I looked at him and I said, Did your sister try and get you in trouble? He goes, oh, yeah. Yeah, I said, mine did too. 
They just, uh, I could be sitting there doing absolutely nothing except what I'm supposed to be doing, and my sister would find a way to get me in trouble. And my mom would believe her. <laughs> I think the most vivid time I had of that is when we were both downstairs. You know, mom had made dinner, and so we were cleaning up, and I was in there washing the dishes, and she was over there drying the dishes. And all of a sudden, she just hollered out, Steve, stop it! And so my mom hollered down, Steve, you better knock it off or I'm going to come down there. I'm not doing anything. And I wasn't. I was just washing the dishes like I was supposed to. She just laughed. She thought that was the funniest thing. <laughs> yep, sisters will do that. They can, uh, you can just be doing nothing at all and they'll come up with some, some things. So maybe his brothers just kind of came up with stuff, even though Jesus, as we know, lived his life perfectly. They could still find some things that, uh, they did wrong. Of course, they didn't do things the way they wanted to. And that right there is, is wrong. For he and his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to, to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast, and I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee, but when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. So we know here from this that none of his brothers believed in him. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the, the twelve, after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. One time 500 people saw him, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. So at this point, some of those 500 had already gone on. Maybe through the persecution, maybe just through natural means, whatever it might be. Verse 7, after that he was seen by James, then by the apostles. Now, he mentions that 500 saw him at one time, then he was seen by James. He doesn't say his brothers. He says James. Apparently, Jesus made a personal appearance one-on-one with his brother James after he was resurrected. When his brother did not believe in him, he still showed up directly and talked with him. Now, that'll get a lot of people saved right there. Then last of all, he's seen by me also as by one born out of due time. Well, he appeared to, to Paul after on the, on the road to Damascus after he had already ascended. But he was seen by James. So he made a personal appearance to James to uh, recruit him for whatever it was that he was going to do. <laughs> and he became one of the uh, pillars of the church of Jerusalem. And just as Paul was also had that personal encounter, James had a somewhat of a similar encounter. If you had a similar type of encounter, if Jesus had shown up one-on-one with you, how many of you would be talking about that in a letter that you're writing out to the church? And he left it out. Love to know what kind of things have gone on in that conversation, but we are not told. In Acts chapter 1, verse 13, Acts chapter 1, this is right after the, uh, the time of Jesus. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So we went from not believing in him while he was here to directly after his ascension being in the upper room. That's a big change for his brothers, James being among them. So we know that he appeared to James. I don't know if he appeared to the other brothers. They weren't necessarily in the list. But James was there and perhaps James went over and he may have been the most outspoken of those against him. In fact, when they had the spokesman, when they approached Jesus in the passage that we read, James may have been the, the spokesperson of them. 
when Jesus appeared to him, he must have gone back to his brothers, told them some things, and they all turned around, and they turned into believers. So that now we've got them all in the upper room. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, And I advance in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So Paul lists him as one of the apostles of that day. That doesn't mean one of the 12 apostles, uh, the disciples that Jesus had with him, but he had ascended to the level of an apostle over the church of Jerusalem. Now James was martyred in about 62 AD. I already told you this, but the book was possibly one of the first epistles written and the last to be canonized. In fact, Martin Luther despised this book. He called it the gospel of straw. He did not like it. And I don't know if you know, know this. I know I knew it and forgot about it until I was doing some, some looking over this. The order that our books are in the Bible are actually formulated very much by Martin Luther. And the books that we have at the end of the New Testament are the books he had the least respect for. Which would be Hebrews, James, Jude, and Revelation. He just did not uh, take to those. He saw James's message as different from the gospel of grace. And since he was combating some things in the area of works with the church at the time, he just didn't think very highly of, of that particular uh, letter, nor the other books that are put there at the end. So if you ever wonder about the order of those, uh, he kind of ranked them in his order of importance. Romans, to him, was one of the more important um, New Testament writings. And so you'll see that uh, uh, come pretty early on, right after all the historical accounts of, the, of what happened in the New Testament time. So let's go on here to verse 2. Now that we have all that history out of the way. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So, now that we understand the situation that the Jewish believers face and why James is writing this letter, he does not have much of an introduction. He doesn't have the kind of introduction that even Paul has. Paul gave the Galatian church a longer introduction than James gives on his letter. And, and Paul really basically just runs through his introduction compared to most times and then just really digs into them. I am amazed at how quickly you have left the gospel. But he still gave more of an introduction than James does. Basically, all James does is, all right, well, how you doing? This is James. And uh, you. this is the ones I'm writing to. Greetings. That's it. <laughs> and we go right in. My brethren. Very personal account here. And we'll break down some of the things in the Greek, but probably not till next week. I just want you to see the overall picture here of what's happening. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. The one thing that is foremost on his mind is that the people in his church that have been dispersed are going through great trials. He doesn't know what the trials are. Some of the trials and some of the places where people are, they're facing great pressure to worship the emperor. Some are facing great pressure of, of death for their beliefs. Some are facing great pressure in the area of work and the kind of things that they should do in order to have work. Some are seeing all kinds of immorality around the city which they never saw in Jerusalem. Even though Jerusalem had fallen and become very religious, they still had not gone into this, this heathenism that was going on around the rest of the Roman Empire. And when you get around that the first time, that's pretty tough. I, I can speak from experience on that, and I haven't seen anything like one of these folks, you know, a, a new 
new family, leaves the area of Judea and goes to Corinth. Oh, the things they would have seen. Goes to Ephesus. Oh, the shock and the horror. What did we just move into? And, uh, you know, I was in a, in a public school when I grew up. I can't consider my, my life as sheltered as some, but I was certainly a lot more sheltered than, than many things. We were raised in a Baptist home. We weren't allowed to do a lot of things that other people were allowed to do. And we just didn't do them. We didn't even think of doing them. <laughs> we, just, we just didn't do them. And other people did. And when I got out there to, uh, to college, and I was in a college environment, well, it was a Christian college. And we lived on campus, and they kind of restricted a lot of the things that you do. We didn't do them. We didn't even think about doing them. We just, we just went on. And then when I was out there in Tulsa and going to Rama, well, there's no college to dorm to live in, so you had to find an apartment, and you had to go out there and find a job. So I found a job, and I was working in this place. I told you the story before how God led me there, and, and God opened a door, and, and it was a wonderful place to work, and, and uh, uh, probably could have done it for the rest of my life and <laughs> had some, some level of happiness to, to that. Because, uh, oh, I, it was a very challenging one. I really enjoyed it. But it was not easy to start with. And I, I was suddenly immersed in a world that was extremely immoral. I had never seen or heard people talk in this manner before. And they talked about, uh, the guys would talk about the girls, and the girls would talk about the guys in ways that I surely wished that Bose would have invented those earplugs that you could have put in your ears and no one could see them and the noise canceling and I just wouldn't hear anybody talk. I would have been far happier if I just wouldn't have heard anybody talk because I didn't like any of the conversations that was going on. I didn't like the language that was coming out of their mouths. And there are many times I went back home after a long shift and said, dear God, I know I missed it. I'm either in the wrong city or the wrong place to work because this is just terrible. There were drug deals going out of the back being run by the manager. There were people who, who set up uh, there was a guy who was who was out there, and he was portraying himself as being uh, kind of a goody two shoes. Then there were two waitresses who decided we're going to we're going to take him off of that, and they conspired how they were going to pull him off of this uh, little goody two shoes stand that he had. They had no affection for him, no love for him at all. Actually, despised him, and were going to act in a completely different way than that. I said, I never knew people acted like this. I never even knew people could conceive of doing stuff. I could not even fathom it. And here I am immersed in the midst of it. And that was a small sampling of what these guys faced in the Roman Empire. You're looking at pornography on every corner. They had statues. They had people in, in positions and doing things. And it was just, it was horrible. And uh, pro- legal prostitution was going on here. And you had places, you know, you could advertise for it. And it was advertised for. And there were places, certain places you could go to for this kind of thing to, to happen. And now you've got these kids that you're trying to raise up in the way of the Lord. And they're seeing all this kind of stuff going on. That was tough. That is some of the various trials that was going on. Now, he doesn't know all the trials that they're going on. But he, he hears things about what happens out there in the world. And he feels for them. And this can, this certainly can take your joy. I know for me, just a little tiny bit that I saw, it took my joy away. I had no joy. <laughs> no joy being in there. I had a hard time getting joy out of just being in classes at, at Raymond because uh, of all the other things. Well, I had to leave here. I got to go over to that job. And I got to deal with these people. And um, it, it was not something that I looked forward to. I only stayed there because I felt that God told me to, to go. But I, everything in me wanted to leave. Everything in me wanted to go. In fact, I think I've told you the story that I had figured it out that said, you know what, when I go home for Christmas, I'm just going to stay there. I'm not going to come back again. I just, I don't like the city. I don't like what's going on. I, I just can go. And I was ready to. But things did turn around and things did change. And thank God for that. But <laughs> these folks didn't have anything near as easy as I had. And if it discouraged me, certainly they have, they were feeling discouraged. They were facing tests and trials like they had never faced back in Jerusalem. They were facing things that were legal that were not even thought about in Jerusalem. And this is what they had to deal with. And there was an expectation that they would comply, 
And they would go along and they would accept these things. And if they stood up against them, pressure would come. And the first thing that James says to them, first thing out of his mouth, so to speak, or out of his pen, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. He's not just telling them, look guys, you get into a tough time, just, just be glad, be joyful. He's telling, he's giving them not only this is what you should do, this is the reason why. And he gave them the reason why. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. There's a good that will come out of this. Stay with it. Now this church in Jerusalem, they saw rapid growth. We saw that in the book of Acts. 5,000 added over here. Thousands more added another day. And just, it was growing very rapidly. But they faced problems from Jewish believers on a continual basis they saw this. Peter came in and he ministered to the problem that they had there in Jerusalem with the Jewish believers. Paul would come in and he tried to minister to the problem that was going on there. In fact, Paul would minister to this problem in all the different cities he would go to, the problems that would come in with Jewish believers. But Peter would come in and he would minister to it and then he'd leave and he'd go someplace else. Paul would come in and he'd minister to that problem and then he'd go off someplace else. But James stayed. James didn't go anywhere. James stayed in this situation the entire time. He was the pastor of the church. Other people came and left, but he stayed there. He had to deal with this problem with all this anger from the Jewish people. He has a home there. He's not just staying someplace. And surely they probably came against his home, came against his family. We're not going to get into it here today. We're running out of time. But if you went over to Acts chapter 21 and looked at how they faced Paul's visit, the kind of atmosphere that he was in. In Acts chapter 21, verse 15, Paul arrives and says, Look, Paul, we know you're a good guy. We know uh, that you believe in the, the Word of God, but yeah, people have been saying some things about you. So we've got a way for you to do this. And he, of course, went along with it. Probably shouldn't have, but he went along with it. But they're counseling him in this way. And uh, maybe sometime we'll take some, some time to go look at that. But then a riot comes out and... 20, in verse 26, and they just riot the whole city. The Roman soldiers, they come on out to, they get deployed because of this riot. This is the atmosphere that James is trying to have a church in. And you can see it's, it's really tough. So he's having battles there at home and he's having battles with the people that have already left and what they're going through. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. The focus here is not on what kind of trials you're going through. Whether you're going through tri- trials from a different culture, whether you're going through trials that are financial, whether you're going through trials of separation, whatever the trials is, he says they're various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. He is preparing the people for tests and trials and the coming hardships that they will go through. Romans chapter 5 verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom? Also, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope and the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that the tribulation produces perseverance. We glory in tribulations. In other words, you get glad about tribulations. Tribulations coming, we get glory. And perseverance, character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Not getting all the details of this, but this is another place in scripture where it talks about just because tribulations are there, don't get sad. Stay glad. Rejoice. First Peter 1 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while if need be you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes though it is though it is tested by fire may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ whom having not seen you love though now 
you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So in three different places, we're told that though trials come upon you, you need to find the joy in it. You need to find the gladness in it. Because when you find the gladness in it, you attack it differently. You go after it in a different way. And this is what he's telling them to do. Be glad on these things. Now, things do happen. They happen to us. We have things that can happen in our jobs. We have things that can happen in our finances. We have things that can happen in our families. We have things happen in our nation. Things do happen, but there are three categories of these, and the role of faith in each is different. So he broke these into three categories. There are things that come to be, first off, because God said. There are things that happen in this world. There are things that happen in our life because God said. And that's it. Just because God said it. It It's regardless of our faith in it. It has absolutely nothing to do with whether we believe it. God said it. It's going to happen. Some things along this, this nature are the rapture. The rapture is something that is going to happen whether you believe it or not. Your faith has absolutely nothing to do with it. God has said it and it's going to occur. The rise of the Antichrist. You can't hold that back. It's going to happen. He's told us that it's coming. The millennial kingdom. I don't need to believe it into existence. It's coming because God spoke it. Jesus' resurrection from the dead. There is not a bit of faith that was needed on the part of people, which is a good thing because there wasn't any. Jesus told them, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to raise from the dead. There's not a person who believed it. But they didn't need to. God said it and he was going to bring it out, bring it about. So that's the first category of things that will come to be is because God said. That's it. But not everything fits into that category. Just because God said it doesn't mean that that's the category it fits into. There are some things that God will say that that are be different. But here's the first category. Because God said, I have nothing to do with it. And you, I already gave you a few things in this list. You can go on with some other things and add some more stuff to it. But let's go on to the next one. Here's the second one. There are things that come to be because I believe what God said. These are a different list of things. This is a different category of things than we had before. When we have faith in what God says, written or spoken, they come about. Salvation would be one of those things. God has said it, but I have to have belief for it in order for it to come about in my life. We saw the story of Jehoshaphat. God said some things, but there had to be a belief part on theirs. And when they acted in belief on what God had said, then we saw the deliverance. We spent some time in that some weeks before on a Sunday morning. Jeroboam was told some things. If you will do these things, I will make of your house an enduring house like I did with David. Well, he didn't do it. So this is the second category of things. These are the, this is the category of things that will come to be because I believe what God said. It's not one of those things that comes about because God said it. It comes about because God said it and I mixed faith with it. I believed it. And that's what brought it about. There are, here's a third category. There are things that come to be regardless of what God said he wants. That is the third category. Things that come to be regardless of what God said he wants. God has kept his declarations away from this. He has not made a declaration in this area. Just because something comes to be doesn't mean that God wanted it to or helped it to prosper. If you follow after the things that happened as if God is in it, you will be praying in ways that are against God. Here's some examples for you. Not all are saved. God desires all to be saved. Doesn't he say in his word? I desire that all men become saved, come to a knowledge of salvation. But not all are. 
So God has said, this is what I want, but here's the reality. We know from the ministry of Jesus that every single person that Jesus encountered was healed. Everyone, everyone that we have a record of, that there were times that they would bring multitudes to him and he healed them all. But still, there are people that are not healed. That doesn't mean that it's, that it's God's will. Just because it doesn't seem to be going on. <clears throat> people are not set free. Just because people are not safe, set free doesn't mean that God doesn't want them to be set free. There are things that be regardless of what God said He wants. There are people who decided to become prophets, pastors, and others. Other types of false brethren. People who decided to become them. There are people who decided, I'm going to become a prophet. There are people who decided, I'm going to become a pastor. There are people who decided, I'm going to become a teacher. I'm going to become an apostle. I'm going to become an evangelist. There are people who made that decision, I am going to. God didn't want it. It says in the Word of God that God sets those in the church as He wills. But other people have come up and they've done these things. God didn't want it. It came about regardless of what God said He wants. This is the third category. How can I pray for God to prosper people in positions He didn't call them to? If I've got a false brethren in the position of a pastor, a false brethren in the position of a prophet, how can I make a prayer that says God prosper them in the thing that they're doing? I can't. If God is not behind them, I cannot pray that they prosper in the thing which they are doing. Such a person making that prayer does not know the heart of their father. And what you do is you grieve the heart of their father. How can you think I am in that? How can you think I am behind this person who is doing these things? When I see somebody who is doing harm in the body of Christ and is not called into the position that they are operating in, I don't pray, well, God, just use them the best you can. I pray, God, God, take them out of that position. And if, if God has to, he will take their life. That has occurred. We can think of many times in the Word of God where this is, has gone on. And even some of the recent examples we looked at in the, in the Scriptures. These kind of things have, have happened. God didn't call them into that. We saw, remember that uh, Sunday we took on all the kings of the north? There was a whole lot of scriptures on that Sunday. We looked at a whole lot of them. We looked at the difference between those in the north whom God put in place and those kings that God did not put in place. You remember the people that God put in place when they disobeyed God? Dogs and birds were involved. And those people that God did not put in place, they were assassinated. They were taken out. There was no prospering in, in their position. In the kings of the north, as we spent time looking on it, there are only three that we know of, three reigns, three uh, rural lines that God started. Probably, though, there are four. We just don't have the prophecy on Omri. But I think he was probably one who was who was placed in that as well. And we, we spent time on the reasons for it. The other ones after Jehu, who was the last one. After that, the other ones that came up, they came up and each one of them was assassinated. Until the final one was uh, faced the king of Assyria and was removed that way. That was not a place for people to pray for those particular people who had usurped the kingship from those that it was that it was called to. In fact, when Jehu's line was wiped out, the people who did it they were not called by God to do so. Jehu, you know, was called by God to wipe out the house of Ahab. He had the anointing on him to do it. Therefore, the protection of it came with it. But when someone came up and wiped out the house of Jehu, even though God said this is going to be punished, they were taken out. I think they reigned, what was it, seven days? I have to know what God is behind and what God is not. Because there are things that happen, there are things that come to be regardless of what God said He wants. We have the prayer of Jesus. And Jesus says in that prayer, I pray for those that you have given me. Not for those in the world. 
but for those that you have given me. And he said, I have not lost any. We had to know the heart of the Father. There are things, there are events, there are disasters, there are blessings that go on all around us. But these things, these events, these disasters, these blessings that go on are never to take the place of the Holy Spirit, God's Word, those who teach it, or His prophets. The will of God is made known through these avenues, revealing His plans against those of the enemy. Let me read this, repeat this to you, because I don't think I put this in your outline. There are things, events, disasters, and blessings. A lot of times people like to be led by things. They like to be led by blessings. Well, I did this and I got blessed. I did this and I didn't get blessed, so I'm going to do this more. They get led by blessings. They get led by things. They get led by events. They get led by disasters. They look at a disaster and they say, well, God must not have been in that. That disaster happened. They use these things to determine the will of God. God never wants us to use things, events, disasters, or blessings to know what His will is. Not a single time in Scripture has ever done that way. When God wants to make known His will, He makes known His will through the Holy Spirit, speaking directly to us. He makes it known through His Word. He's taught us things in His Word. He has makes, He makes His will known by those who teach His Word. And he makes his will known by his prophets that he sends. The will of God is made known through these avenues, revealing his plans and those of the enemy. He will reveal the plans of the enemy, the plan that the enemy has against you. Now, I think I left this in your outline. I hope I did. Wisdom is to know which fits the thing that we face. Did I leave that in your outline for you? Wisdom is to know which fits the thing that we face, put it in the wrong group and failure will result. If you take something that belongs in the part, in the category of regardless of what God said He wants and put it into a category of because God said, you will fail. If you take something that is in the because I believe what God said and put it in the category of regardless of what God said He wants, you will fail. And that failure will not be part of God's responsibility. That failure will be on us. Because I as a believer am to know what is it that God has said and this is what's going to happen no matter what. What is it that God has said I need to have faith in and what is it that God has said this is what I want but this is not necessarily what is going on. And God is not in that. If I ever blame God for what is going on in the world. And the Word of God, the prophets of God, the teachers of God, or His Word, teaches me otherwise. I am guilty of a, blas- a type of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because I am assigning to what is the kingdom of Satan to God. Don't do it. Do not get into that area. There are things that happen in this world that happen regardless of what God said He wants. I gave you some of the examples. If our view of trials and tests does not conform to what James teaches, we may endure, but the perfect work will be lost. We may survive, we may get through it, but the perfect work will be lost. James is writing this letter because he wants these people who are going to go through some tests and trials, some great things that they're going to go through some great things they're going to be put through because of their faith in God. He wants them on the other side to have great reward. But it's not just going to happen. They have to do some things. They have to operate in a certain way. And the book of James teaches us how to face a terrible world with a faith that will overcome. And this is what his book is about. These are the people that he is writing to. In this, in this, but one of the reasons that people had a hard time with this is because of some of the things that Paul would write. But faith to Paul was a trust that cannot exist without obedience. That was what faith was to Paul. 
It must be a vital working faith, a faith that works by love. Galatians 5 and verse 6 tells us that. A faith that works by love. For the same thing James also contended. Faith is not a magic formula. It must have works that demonstrate a genuineness and or otherwise it is a dead faith. There must be something that shows you that this faith is genuine and not just something that is proclaimed. James and Paul were not fighting each other in the things that they wrote. They were opposing a common enemy. And they were equipping people with the kind of faith that they would need. People like Martin Luther saw Paul as contrary to James. And he preferred to believe Paul. But there's no reason to to not believe both. And so we'll get into some of the reasons why that is brought up. But this is just kind of our overall picture, what he's here to, to try and do, what he's here to, to bring us to. Faith that works. Faith that accomplishes things. Faith that actually gets things done. And that's what he's, he's doing here. He wants them to have the kind of faith that will endure under great trials and great pressure and come out on the other side tested and pure and able to bring them the rewards that he so much wants them to have because of his love for them and he knows what they're going through. How many times have we taken things from the wrong category and described stuff that God does not want as something that God does? In our day and age here, there are many things that are going on that simply by understanding the Word of God, we can say God is not in that. And I don't care how many Christians side with it. I don't care how many people decide to go along with that way. It does not make it God. I understand what God stands for through His Word. And I will make a stand on that. We have to resolve ourselves just like the people that he's writing to. Wherever this is being circulated, you may be the minority in whatever city, whatever town that you are in. You may be one of the few who believes in Jesus. You may be one of the few that has faith that will endure. But don't you give up. Don't you let it go. That faith that you have is a powerful tool. And you need to count it all joy when you encounter any type of testing of your faith, any type of trial, no matter what it is that comes against you, you need to count it all joy. Father, we thank you for the words that James wrote to his church and how they can be encouraging to us. They face some tremendous pressures They had people that wanted them to conform to what everyone else thought and everyone else did. They had people who wanted them to quit preaching the gospel of Jesus and just get along. They wanted people to quit standing for the righteous moral stands that the Word of God told them to hang on to and enjoy the pleasures of sin that were all around. We're going to face some of the same pressures in different ways, some of the same pressures that they faced here. And I thank you that the same faith that worked for them will work for us. For we need to know our God and know the things that His hand is on And those things that his hand is not. And just because a thing happens does not mean it's God's will. And I thank you that you have brought us to that understanding that we can see that in your word. Because if we had to accept that everything that happens in this world is your will, it would be a tough place to live. Thank you for the things you teach us and the things you encourage us with. 
In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Any comments, questions? Did I leave anything out? Yeah. First Corinthians. Mm-hmm. The only James that were prominent were James the Apostle, who was the brother of John, and James the brother of Jesus. There are about three other James that are mentioned. Some people think that James the Lesser is the same as the other James the, of the uh, Twelve Apostles. There's a good case to be made that they're both the same people. But he was never a significant figure and certainly not, I think if you trace him through history, you'll find out where he went. He did not go to Jerusalem. That was not his place of operation. The only one who was a James, who was a leader in the church of Jerusalem, was James, the brother of John, uh, James, the brother of Jesus. And we know that from historians, too, who wrote during that time. They also told us that James, the brother, half-brother of Jesus, was the one who was in Jerusalem, was the one who was heading the church, and he was also the one who was martyred in 62 A.D., in Jerusalem because of what he was doing. Yeah, no, no. Absolutely. I spent a lot of time making sure I knew who this, uh, who this James character was, looking at a lot of different things, reading a lot of stupid stuff. <laughs> Do you even believe some of the things that people put out as scholarly material? I was, uh, I was amazed. Miss Gladys, you had something. Things, events, disasters, or blessings are never to take the place of the Holy Spirit God's word, those who teach it, or his prophets. The will of God is made known through these avenues, revealing his plans and those of the enemy. Is that the one you meant? Uh, I may have paraphrased it later on in that kind of a way. The pastors and teachers are certainly those who teach it. making a just separation from his prophets. Uh, the whole purpose of, of me writing it down this way is that first and foremost, the Holy Spirit's going to be speaking to you. You're going to have that witness from the Holy Spirit. But beside that, there's God's Word. But he sent people to teach the Word of God. Otherwise, people come up with some weird things that they think is in the Bible. And so God has anointed and gifted different people to teach the Word, to bring people along the lines of, of, what, it's, of what is in there. And then there are his prophets, and those are the ones who go before God and hear the words and repeat those words. This is how he makes his will known. These are the ways that he goes. But he never makes his will known through things, events, disasters, or blessings. Not things good, not things bad. So that's the main thing I was trying to, to emphasize. There are Christians who will look at blessings while well, I was doing this and I got blessed. That must be God. Well, I was doing this and things didn't go so well. That must not be God. They are moved by these kind of events and these kind of things. We cannot be moved by those. We have to be moved by his word. We have to be moved by, uh, by his prophets when, they t when they they're going to speak some things. I got to discern, discern false prophets from true prophets. But when the true prophets speak, they need to get my attention. Yeah. Oh, we're going to get into that in a lot more detail. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but how they ask you to say two until next week? Because we really were looking at the broad picture of this. We're going to break this one down. I was kind of disciplining myself not to <laughs> on this because I knew I'd get too distracted by all the small parts of this. I didn't want you to miss out the whole picture. The whole picture here is the condition of the church. His role is the pastor and what he's trying to do to help them. And the first thing out of his mouth is about their trials. So despite whatever small thing we get by looking at all the Greek and all the nitty-gritty of this, I want you to see overall the whole picture. This is a pastor writing to his church who he can't see anymore. And he knows they're going through some tough times. And the first thing that he says to them, verse 2, the first thing he says to him, 
I want you to count it all joy when you encounter all kinds of various, many different types of mikvah. We'll look at all these different words. All these different words will help us understand the, the nuances of this great verse of Scripture. But this is, this is the first and foremost thing on his mind because he knew they were going through some tough things and that the enemy was going to try and make them to have decisions based on those things instead of what they should. So we'll have, we're going to spend some time on that. Uh, a lot more time than we did today. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, we will, we will get into that. Anything from there? Internet folks? Okay. <laughs> Be happy to. Ah, yes. Faith to Paul was a trust that cannot exist without obedience. I can just leave this up here too if you want to write down any of this, this stuff. Faith to Paul was a trust that cannot exist without obedience. And so that's where his emphasis on his faith is there's a lot of obedience, there's a lot of doing the things that God says to do. For James, he says faith without an outcome. Faith without a result is pretty much the same thing as dead faith. But he is dealing with people who need results. They need something to go on. They need some changes to go on in their life. They need some help in facing what they're facing out there. And he's saying to them, faith has results. And so he's emphasizing that because of the people that he's, he's coming to try and aid and to help. He doesn't want people to think that faith is a magic formula. But it must have works that demonstrate its genuineness. Otherwise, it is dead. Does that help? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'll leave that up over here if anybody wants to come up and look at it afterwards. What's that? Yeah, I was uh, trying to give you some blank lines where I was expecting to, to write stuff. But... Um, <laughs> I took some of the things from the outline from the last time I went through it, and I wiped out at least half of it. Didn't uh, just didn't didn't uh, include it on there because we wanted to put a lot more of these uh, these aspects on it. Yep. Yep. He's uh, Paul is Paul is looking at you need to have that genuine faith in you to be saved, and he's looking at if you don't have a faith that produces something, man, you. You are not going to be in good shape with where you're at. You got to get that faith to a place where you can do something with it, and because uh, that's what they needed, they were going to get discouraged. <laughs>